What you've heard is true. Alien is heavy on sexual metaphors, which some viewers may find undesirable. We don't talk about them at length in this episode, but we do mention them. Thank you for listening. Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Trilo, the literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies that we saw at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Moneyapolis, Minnesota. Moneyapolis. Has anybody ever called it Moneyapolis? I mean, yep. Some people are rolling in it there. Yeah, the one percent. This just, just got start real over? political, real. <laughs> you fast. can find us at Trilove Podcast on Twitter. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. Full names. My name is Cody Narvison. I'm Harry Mackin. Hey there, this is Aaron. And I'm Eric Leith. Thank you very much for joining us again today, Eric. You've been on a number of episodes. Do you remember which ones you've been on with us? Uh, I was on, uh, the number is two. Uh, <laughs> I was on Raising Arizona and Miller's Crossing. And uh, fortunately, I was scooped back up off the streets. And uh, here we are. So I was correct. It was a number of episodes. It was a number, It sounded yes. like you were trying to correct me on my own <laughs> podcast. No, no, I just no. want to clear the air. I would he never. Was, he was responding. You said you've been on a number, and Eric said, correct, that number is two. There's, uh, not, there's I, nothing better than informational accuracy. I, that's, that's what people come to, like, podcasts for right, is informational accuracy. So I just wanted to know. make sure to give the people what they want. Sure. Jason, don't favorite. rile up the Eric stands that are out there. Um, and for, for the listeners, we're establishing first act antagonism among the crew members here so that we can come to resolve our uh, our differences by the end of the podcast. That's just a side note that the internal characters of this podcast don't know. This we're all is a be, soliloquy. Right. We're all going to be murdered by the alien <laughs> by the end of this podcast. Oh, this should have been the Halloween I was going to say, we're doing the Halloween cast very early. Yeah. Today, okay. we're going to be talking about a movie that is arguably been talked about way too much, but we're going to see if we can't pull any takes and new ideas out of it. Just going to argue about it Yeah, some we're more. just going to get angry. Uh, this is going to be Ridley Scott's Alien from 1979. Um, do we have a quick synopsis of what this movie's about? No, because Aaron is the guy who does that. Yeah, Here, I can pull something up. Uh, we, don't, we don't need it's it. It's pretty easy. Um, Wikipedia or Letterboxd? Or Harry? Uh, on their way back from a mining expedition, the crew of the Nostromo responds to a distress signal um, and end up taking an alien life form on board after it attacks one of the crew. That alien life form gestates quickly and evolves into um, a deadly killer called a xenomorph that stalks them through the ship, killing them one by one, until eventually the main character, Ellen Ripley, has to overcome it through her ingenuity and... Guile. Guile and uh, tenaciousness. Tenacity? Sure. Almost like that's the right word. That's and literally what Letterboxd had, too, so we're good. Ouch. Uh, <coughs> this movie was um, pivotal for sci-fi and for horror uh, because a lot of preceding sci-fi, where they had intersected in the past, 
um, ended up more like the other some of the other movies that the Trilon has been playing recently. It, the Terror from Beyond Space, etc., where they were like either super cheesy or super low budget or whatever. This sort of combined the drama and high budget, or at least like ten million dollar budget, excuse me, of more dramatic uh, efforts in Hollywood and the um, sort of calm, quiet horror of exploitation films. Uh, so the calm, quiet horror of exploitation films. Is that what I said? It's not what I meant. <laughs> Fair enough. Blooper. Uh, Hit it. Yeah, I'll just put a, a long beep over that whole phrase. Um, I'm just making, pulling shit out of my ass. What do we... I mean, I, I like... Well, that's the whole podcast. It's so true. I liked this movie quite a bit. Uh, I might be the outlier. Um, <laughs> I know that it's kind of the underdog for most of the film industry. Uh, no, I like this movie. Uh, Cody, what did you think of... What do you think of Alien? You've seen it a lot. Uh, yeah, I love Alien. It's one of my favorite movies. It's also one of my favorite movies. I think it's, in general, one of the best movies ever made, personally. Aaron? Uh, I'm probably not going to say anything that, that for the most part, uh, everybody else hasn't already touched upon. I think everybody probably likes the movie quite a bit. I will say, you know, obviously this is one of the best uh, sci-fi movies ever made. You know, arguably one of the best horror movies ever made, too. It's, it's uh, a relatively perfect film uh, in my mind. And uh, I guess the, the one thing that I'll say that, that really um, kind of stuck out for me at the, the last viewing at the Trilon... You know, I'd seen it a few times before, but the thing that really stuck out to me was just how short this movie feels. Uh, This movie is um, 117 minutes long, so just shy of two hours. And to me, this movie feels like it's uh, about 60 minutes. I mean, literally just about an hour doesn't feel much longer than that at all. Um, You know, obviously, I kind of knew that the movie was longer, but when we got to the very end of the movie and Ripley is, you know trying to survive she's the only member of the uh ship's crew alive uh this the movie at that point felt like it had been going for about 40 minutes right which i know was wrong um but i don't know you just get so engrossed in the atmosphere uh the environment the characters um that uh, you know you don't really watch the clock on this one and i think that's uh you know super impressive uh testament just to the, the great job that everybody that worked on this movie did. Uh, the directing's wonderful. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That, that's kind of what I'll say about it. Um, I'm sure everybody else has given a lot of good points, so um, I'm sure I agree with a lot of that as well. And uh, just, yeah, while we're, uh, while we're, while we're, you know, while I'm recording here, I would like just to admit, uh, formally, uh, for the first time, that uh, I was the person behind the Max Headroom uh, broadcast signal interruption of 1987. Um, a lot of people might think that's weird. Uh, I wasn't born yet, you know. Uh, I wasn't alive. Actually, I was, and that uh, that was me. Um, so yeah, just wanted to get that off my chest. Uh, don't talk about it a lot. Maybe some of my close friends know, but just wanted to formally kind of announce that. So uh, other than that, uh, I'm not going to give my thoughts on the uh, uh, sequel to Alien Aliens. Uh, I think everybody's going to shit on it, and uh, if I say anything positive, they'll shit on me, and then I'll cry. Um, so, I don't I don't want that to happen. So, anyway, I uh, hope you guys are having a good recording, and uh, yeah. That's right, Aaron. Uh, er- Eric, what did you think of Alien? Um, well, so, uh, like the, the gentleman who preceded me, also very fond of this movie, and like Cody, also one of my favorite movies of all time, and uh, when, when I had you know, realized that 
Trilove would be doing Alien, I, like, kind of sadly was begging. I was like, hey, let me on the podcast. I want to talk about <laughs> you know Alien. Me, love to have you me. don't know how many people are just knocking down our door <laughs> Well, that's the thing. thing. I mean, we, we're definitely not desperate to find people who w- are willing to talk to us. We are like the escape pod of podcasts. <laughs> Everybody well, just wants to get on and well, get the Well, that's the, the thing, out. right? Harry was telling me, he's like, no, you can't come on. We've got this killer guest lined up here. And so I was all sad. And then... Uh, you know, Harry was coming in to record today, and he saw this guy on the side of the road, Will Voice for food, and was like, "Oh shit!" Our other guest didn't materialize, so and he like, oh, and Harry yes. dumped his coffee, hot coffee, on this guy's face. This poor homeless bastard's face is just as Harry is known to do, just splashed him right in yep. the face with it. And it, when when and I, as I understand, you let out such a a mellifluous yawp. That Harry was like that. Mellifluous yeah. That turned it around for him, right? Like the story the story goes that the only way that you managed to get this land this gig in the first place. Sorry, I'm still trying to absorb mellifluous yop. <laughs> um yeah, God, just like this is fucking comedy. Why do you keep ruining it? <laughs> yes, and <laughs> uh, I yeah, no, I mean that was that was basically what happened. It was actually really good at uh, waking me up the I mean, the second-degree burns aren't great, but, I mean... Right, it, they it, look pretty bad. It did help me sort of get ready for get ready for the podcast and be alert for... If you want to just scooch back from the table a little bit, your your pus is dripping yeah, all over oh, your show geez. notes. It's getting... Uh, um, why is this movie considered, like, the best of all time, one of the best of all time? It is, like, on AFI's whatever top 100 of the decade. Um, it's widely regarded as like a technical and narrative masterpiece it's got a lot of like uh, deeper themes running below the you know stalking horror through space but why is it remembered in your opinion why is it remembered as like a a timeless classic whoever's mouth is open can talk um yeah well i again this is my opinion i'm not a a scholar necessarily right so like i don't i can't really speak to i can't really speak to it's it's legacy from a historical perspective, but <clears throat> from my perspective, I think what this movie does so well is it uses the trappings and narrative beats and um, uh, construction of a horror movie and a, a science fiction horror movie specifically so perfectly to suit its themes and its message um, the form and construction of this movie matches its function um, perfectly not unlike the xenomorph itself hey uh, I didn't think of that I, that just came um, but and and so it makes this movie have um, start over nope I'm not uh, no, the form and, the form and the function and the themes a perfect and the, organism for a perfect film they they exactly. unify in a really really cohesive right. strong it, way it, it makes everything feel purposeful and feel pointed um and and deliberate in a way that that very few other movies feel to me mm-hmm. I think that there's there's like a, a concrete specific purpose contributing towards an overall incisive specific and um, timely message that this movie conveys mm-hmm. using everything from its right. its set design, its monster design, its characterization, its plot. All of those things integrate so perfectly uh, to the point where, in in my opinion, this is the sort of thing that couldn't have been told another way. I was about to say, I think it's very much both a product of its time and like because of that, weirdly timeless. Like it, 
uh, the time in which it was released and sort of what preceded it sort of really set it up to be a real home run, just like right back over the net with because the expectations of sci-fi films were sort of cheesy, sort of like nerdy things. I mean, I wasn't alive in the 70s, so I don't know exactly. There might be some examples pre-Alien that really like refute my argument, but that it was sort of just intersecting these two concepts of horror and of science fiction, specifically outer space science fiction, uh, in that way was both unique and like not half-assedly done, right? It wasn't just like a quick cash money grab. It wasn't just an exploitation film. It was um, like a serious quote-unquote dramatic effort, right? They got some really great actors, not all, well, uh, Sigourney Weaver's first, this was her first leading role, right? I think it was her breakout. I don't know if it was yeah. her first leading role or not, but certainly it's the it's the role she's been most associated with. It's the role that made her famous mm-hmm. for good reason. Uh, and the like, all of the technical elements of this movie are, I think, alone worth talking about. Yes. But I would also like to talk about the uh, just starting off with like the th- deeper themes of the of Alien. We should probably put some sort of a content warning because it's well known this movie is rife with a lot of violent sexual imagery throughout. Um, yeah. Um, again, we're four dudes, um, so maybe not the right people to to talk about that sort of thing. Uh, we're, we'll, but just that it may We'll try come to up. be sensitive about it, but again, yeah, definitely a content warning. Um, to me, uh, a sexual assault metaphor is central to the, the movie's understanding of what it's, what it's getting at. Um, the alien itself is um, sort of an extended metaphor for sexual assault, in my opinion. Cody, you... Uh, you wrote some about this, or you you had something you wanted to say about this. Yeah, for sure. Um, not sure where exactly we wanted to get, uh, where we kind of wanted to start with. Whether we start with the beginning of like our introduction to the Nostromo, or if we wanted to jump in on the Xenomorph itself. Let's start with the Nostromo. I think that's a good place. Bef- okay. Before yeah. we dive in too much, there's one thing that I thought was kind of interesting about what you said in terms of like science fiction in the late seventies. Um, this was released in 79, just two years before that was the first Star Wars movies. Oh, release. yeah. So, like, to follow up that kind of a juggernaut in the science fiction world is really interesting to me, I think. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that's definitely. a really good contextualization because not only was Star Wars huge, it was also in a more traditional model for what we had come to think of as sci-fi at the time, it sounds like, is, is what you were alleging, sort of, Jason. Um, yeah, exactly. Is like, that, that uh, you know, Star Wars was modeled after adventure serials and after sort of Flash Gordon and um, traditional sci-fi as high adventure mm-hmm. fantasy sort of um, fun. And this movie is extremely not that. Which is an interesting correct. Oh yeah, like even just from the opening scene, it couldn't be farther from Star Wars. I mean, like just this desolate open space versus like the grandiosity of the. And that that speaks to how deliberate everything in this movie feels, mm-hmm. right? It it feels to me, and, and again, like I'm not backseat directing or whatever, but it it feels to me like this movie was was created actually for the message first uh, in terms of like the the artistic statement the artistic sort of theme being conveyed in this movie mm-hmm. is actually where all of its elements came out of um, as opposed to 
the the form sort of becoming the the message, so to speak. Right. Well, as in Star Wars, as mm-hmm. in like Jaws, other big blockbusters that preceded it, being like the the form and uh, and elements of sci-fi just brought together in a very, like you said, Eric, grandiose, a very large showbiz type way. Right. Or I've uh, you know we've we've expressed I've expressed some frustration before with um, the idea of a sort of artistic or thematic message in a movie being just another element to sell uh, a product using you know uh, where do you mean aliens yes uh, yeah I was coming ar- I was coming around to, to talking about aliens but but in, in so many movies and so many blockbusters and in, in um, sort of triple a products it feels like the sort of deeper underlying takeaways of a movie are just another bullet point that corporate executives or whomever have to hit in mm-hmm. order to sell a movie. It's like uh, just another demographic appeal. Um, that's not what this movie feels like to me. This movie feels like it's there to do what it's doing and if you respond to it that's good, but mm-hmm. it's not trying to appeal to you. You know what I mean? Right, right. I, and, and I'm again, like, that's not true, right? Because it's still a blockbuster. It's still a movie. So it was still created to make money because that's what like capitalist art is. But it, was somewhat, but it was somewhat freer than like a sequel might be like again we're going to trash aliens a little bit throughout yeah. this podcast but where they were sort of not built on maybe but definitely driven by their marketability. In, by in their a way it makes it makes Alien even more special though right because mm-hmm. you can see by contrast what Alien is where Alien is this weird uncompromising dark vision of the dangers of corporatism and the the terror of being subsumed by nature and mm-hmm. evil uh, and alien is so much more sanitized and so much more friendly uh, and clearly meant to be a franchise. Um, well, I, and I, what's so interesting about that to me is um, in the context of Ridley Scott, who directed the film, this is his second film he's ever made. There was wild. only one before that, which was The Duelists. And I actually, when I I went back and watched this, and I watched a good chunk of it with the with the commentary from Ridley Scott, and he like even talking about it, he was very like almost fondly reminiscing of it. Like his heart was in that movie, and he talked about like how he would get behind the camera and how he would be doing things on set. And so I think, you I mean, obviously, like you said, yeah, this is a corporate endeavor, but I think he has an attachment to this film that, like, really bleeds through. Sure. And that's what's bringing all those themes and stuff to the forefront. We're probably going to indulge a little bit in the, like, geeking out about certain elements of its technical design, mm-hmm. like set design. There's a great piece that um, Cody linked us to about the topography of Alien, which is just, like, a large, not rambling, very well thought out consideration of all the different type fonts and uh, like set design of Alien. It is really, really good. We'll probably link it in the show notes. Uh, for one yeah. thing, I think that this is maybe my favorite title drop in oh, a movie. Oh man, I, I want to talk about the title sequence because well, it was gonna... like, what is it going to say? Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. No, it, like when I first watched this movie, when I was I got on the train late, maybe like fourteen, fifteen years old. Um, I like I was at the very beginning of the movie. I was like. What is that gonna spell? <laughs> I was I was that idiot in the audience. I was like, what, I. It says v- Sigourney v- Weaver. <laughs> it says ah, <laughs> real uh, aliens. <laughs> but I, I do. Nice. I want to start because the movie starts with um, that's same kind of thing, sprawling open of uh, open space of Star Wars. But 
then really zooming in and focusing on the Nostromo as this living, breathing creature. No, Cody, you made some notes, and I feel like you want to talk about that, too. Sure. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Jason. Of course. That's uh, a great segue. Sh- shout out to Jason. Uh, he produces the podcast. He's a, a good friend of ours. All that I do is the segues. Yeah. Um, and we ride them around your office. It's really fun. Um, I, I like the opening of this a lot, and I think... I, I, I assume you guys kind of latched onto your own stuff as well with this opening uh, sequence where we're, we're setting the stage, we're, we're coming in from space, we're uh, kind of brought on a, a tour of the Nostromo and the pieces that I was sort of looking for and maybe what this movie teaches you to do early is to find the areas in frame that are moving. Um, in almost every single one of the rooms that we visit, there's something that's uh, moving or making noise of its own accord. Um, Does that include the very first scene where, like you said, because before we see any of the characters, and this is really important um, to me, you we do a, a swoop with the camera through just about every room and every deck of the Nostromo, like mm-hmm. you mentioned. Right. Is there a lot of moving parts during that sequence? Yeah, um, and that's, I, I guess, another thing I like that, I've, that I say frequently is um, us exploring the space that we're going to be uh, kind of like the foreshadowing of the environment that we're going to be doing stuff in, I think is really important and really good. Um, and it, it does it here, obviously. The uh, the cockpit, I don't even know if it's a cockpit, but the place where everybody's doing, like, ship things. Um, the deck. The, is that what it's called? I, I believe so. The deck, the crew deck, whatever. Sure. All right, everybody here has been on a ship before. That's really cool. I'm actually Thanks for the pirate. I play video games. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, oh, shit, that's a really good point. <laughs> I walked right into that. Uh, there's a, a stack of papers in the deck that is always, like, fluttering around, almost like it has a oh, fan behind it. Nice. Hmm. Yeah. Um, it, it's shown here, and it's also also shown near the end once everybody except for um, Ripley and Jonesy are dead. Uh, the ship also has one of those, like, uh, momentum-driven drinking water birds um, that's hanging out. And even, like, the... Uh, when everybody starts waking up, um, there are multiple screens that start making bit boop noises. Uh, text comes up, and then the pods opening on their own, um, kind of indicating it's that a, it's it, interesting like a hatching. that, that yeah. on the personnel's deck specifically, the two examples you pointed to are examples of uh, human products brought onto the ship. Yeah, uh, in other parts of the ship, there are moving objects or, or sort of self-operated objects that are not human mm-hmm. in or they are human in origin but they're ship based they're there are the chains in the moisture room or yeah. whatever that is no the moisture room that's yeah there right. are there are blinking lights and uh monitors that seem to be Jesus. um i didn't i missed that what was that there are monitors that seem to be like they're reading text <laughs> they're blinking lights all the time they're like mechanical processes yeah there are the vent systems that are opening and closing and transferring um air in and out the ship seems to be breathing mm. on its own yeah um but but there are also these these human objects interposed into the nostromo sort of uncomfortably right um and in contrast you're supposed to see them and, and understand the um the hard line differences mm-hmm. between the people on board and the ship itself. Right. And the sequence is conditioning us in a few different ways to watch this movie a certain way. Um, like I said, uh, like it teaches you to pick up on the movement, uh, you know, the moving things in frame, uh, your eyes will gravitate towards that. Um, it follows as another movie uh, that kind of gradually throughout the course of the film teaches you to, to watch and look for things in a very specific way that you may not be doing with uh, just, I don't know, any other movie. Um, and it also, just the the fact that this that the Nostromo has this very 
and I, I think we'll talk I'll talk about how it's not like how it's actively working against the crew. Um, yeah, that's that's actually that's a really good way to put that because right. that, that becomes very important to the to reading this movie. I right. Think. Yeah. And it's and it also plays well with the second half of the film once we get you know the xenomorph on board. It, it's almost I don't know I don't know if it's reading too far, but kind of like this manifestation of like the eeriness brought on. Uh, brought about by like working underneath a corporation like Wayland Utani. Well, I was going to say, I mean, it is in sort of a figurative aspect, but also a literal aspect because the ship is not only operated by these crew members, but Mother, the like artificial intelligence, does a significant chunk of the operation. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know. Maybe there's a sort of reason why things might be so oppositional, right? right? Like additionally, well, it, it turns out that that's actually fundamental to Wayland Yutani's uh, mission. Right, was all along um, they were meant to be in opposition to the actual crew members. The crew were expendable in mm-hmm. the face of the mission that they were going on. Um, yeah, Cody just s- stated a lot of what I um, what works about this movie to me. Um, I think that that. What you said before about conditioning the viewer, uh, it makes it sound like those are things that that you would pick up on, or that that uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Sorry. Like they're like they're not ham-fisted necessarily, no, even right. though even though they're sa- it, they sound it almost like it. sounds like it, right? right. Exactly. Uh, but those are invisible. Yeah. Um, this movie does an incredible job, especially in the first act of bringing the viewer into the right framework for viewing the movie without even you're even realizing that that's what it's doing. It, it feels natural that you're watching the movie the way you are when, in fact, the movie is getting you to watch the movie that right. way. Um, spectacularly, I think, in mm-hmm. a way that, that very few movies can, and it does it through its total commitment to its um, aesthetic and um, design. What are your favorite examples of that? Um, I really like... All of the sequences where, in the first act, the characters are um, moving through the ship, or, or there's the the famous first scene where they're all eating together in the cafe or the the sort of crew chamber. What is this shit? It's supposed to be cornbread, right? Yeah. And, and their voices are low, and you can't really hear them, which is really interesting. The sound is diffused in that scene in a way that that doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Like I I I kept at checking the sound mixing the first time I saw this movie just to make sure that I was finding it right. Playing with knobs uh, and levers. Yeah, eventually I ended up just turning on the subtitles. But Mm. when they're in that room, it's so obviously not constructed for what they're using it for. And that's, that's a motif that recurs. That's one of my favorite motifs in the movie is that the Nostromo is so hostile to human life. Like, their their bed chambers are uncomfortable and there are slopes down where if you stood up too quickly you would hit your head and you have to like like lean down bend down to get through doors while also stepping over um the door itself and these corridors are too small and and too restrictive and there there's steam shooting everywhere that Mm -hmm. you have to like dodge and um, these these are ships that were not made with with humans in mind. It seems it seems in the first act like it's at best human agnostic. Uh, it, by the second act, we understand that it's actually actively hostile to human endeavors. Um, and I, I really like anything that frames um, that struggle in those terms. And I think every time we see humans on screen, basically, it does that. Again, from that very first scene where these people are eating together, they're huddled together in this room that's too big for them, sitting in uncomfortable furniture, eating food that is prefab and disgusting, and commenting on how bad it is. 
and they just came out of cryostasis, um, which is itself like a, a traumatic, difficult uh, experience, and we know that because they're all so groggy. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all came out of these pods that were arranged together. Uh, again, Eric, you said like it's like a birth, right? Well, yeah, that, it's like there's this weird thing that I, I mean, I kind of tacked it onto what Cody was talking about on the sheet. But one thing that I noticed time and time again was this thing of birth and rebirth. Like that first scene, it's like we have this whole. The opening is like really like isolate, desolated cold dark space and then as we start moving towards the crew quarters the music changes and it starts to be like more like optimistic and like it's this score that is it it kind of like explodes with life a bit more as they wake out of the pods and like as they wake out of pods and i thought this was hilarious because like i said i was watching the commentary and he talked about something similar to this too when we first kane is the first person we see who's acted by josh hurt and um, it, it almost looks like it's essentially like he was wearing a diaper. And, like, he comes out and it's like this new, like, almost like this new baby metaphor of, like, coming out of this pod. And, I mean, looking at it literally, it's mother waking up these crew members. Yeah, they, they call the ship's onboard AI who coordinates it, um, their mission and automates the ship's functions mother. Mm-hmm. And they're literally talking to mother they right. have to say mother what's going on mother where are we mm-hmm. well and but that that theme still it pops up time and time again i mean when they leave to go onto the ship um from the shuttle that connection is called the umbilicus and uh, and obviously the famous scene of the xenomorph bursting out of cane i mean like it just keeps it's a birth yeah right. it just keeps coming back over right. and over and over that is yeah that's central to kind of like the idea I have of like Kane being uh, like a feminized character mm-hmm. uh, especially once he quote unquote breaches the egg um, he's in turn impregnated and yeah and all of that connecting all of, all of these different life cycles that are taking place um, kind of you know we're, we're setting the, the stage in this really cold um, corporate uh, environment that Harry as you noted is not really uh, a place that especially human life should be um, like it, it shouldn't be undergoing growth in the life cycle in that place and yet we have many different uh, visual uh, metaphors many different life cycles actually taking place once the xenomorph en- enters the picture yeah I what I really love about the opening sequence to this movie is that like their ship remains a cold place and like just unfeeling just beeps and boops ones and zeros until humans are there and then the space does not change at all it's just the way that they move through it it's the light and life that they bring it's the noise that they create that really like actually makes the Nostromo a place rather than just a thing Mm -hmm. right I know that that's like the most basic recognizance of what this movie does with that with that like no that's great and it's it's never transformative we, we're never right. meant to see the Nostromo as anything other than hostile, cold, alien. It's still, but, even when they, like, turn the lights on, even when Mother is active, even when they're eating, it's still kind of like a creepy-looking place, mm-hmm. right? It's still and it, not... And it's, it's about humans existing within that space. Mm-hmm. Uh, humans again, railing against capitalism and corporate interests. Well, yeah, in, right. In, yeah. 
This is the single common thread of Trilove is that we try to find the anti-capitalist uh, message in everything. I, I mean, I, th- I think that it's inescapable. I think this is one of the great anti-capitalist movies. <laughs> I, but, you know, well, I, it, it kind of sets some of that out really early, right? Yeah. I mean, with the whole... Um, uh, with Parker and Brett, who are like the two below deck people, um, played by, let's see, Parker is Yafet Koto and Brett is Harry Dean Stanton. Shout outs. Shout outs. Uh, I mean, just as a quick aside, everybody played their roles really well. Yeah, oh, all the acting um, in this movie is great, even when it's over the top. Yeah. But um, those two in particular, like, it already sets this dynamic that even there's like a a sort of uh, divide between the below-deck people and the above-deck people. And because, I mean, like, uh, Brett and Parker are, like, consistently like, hey, are we going to get our full shares? Like, they've been systematically screwed over before. And so... And it, yeah, they're they're sort of treated as second-class. Exactly. Or, or they proceed under the assumption that they're being treated that way, and they clearly have a sort of blue-collar chip on their shoulder. Right. Um, all of the characters, especially those two characters, literally wear... Um, like industrial worker blue jumpsuits mm-hmm. um, that have the Nostromo logo emblazoned on them. Did they ever um, show you the picture that I took at the Seattle Museum of Popular Art? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Actually, yeah. like Harry Dean Stanton wore. Hat is oh. in there, right? Yeah. Big nerd out moment of my life. Amazing. <laughs> Go ahead. Continue. Um, They're actually emblazoned with. They're wearing like corporate logos throughout. Right, but but they're also working class uniforms. Um, the the identification of of class and the discussion of class that takes place. Uh, here early on really carries us through to the um, introduction of the the aliens, the xenomorphs, um, such that the the whole discussion about whether or not they're going to check out this planet, which is more or less a trope in the franchise now. Um, Most of the other alien sequels kind of have that, you know, oh, should we check out this planet? Um, Sunshine, recent episode, also very similar. Yeah, it's the... Investigating a distress signal is such a trope that it's literally like a gameplay feature in sci-fi games, right? Where it's like, oh, you can go investigate distress signals. Yeah, Mass Effect. Yeah. Mm. Oh, is that a video game? No. Oh, okay. Uh, I I like how this movie frames it because it's very much like if we don't go to this planet, if we don't check this shit out, like we aren't getting paid. Like you get a forfeiture of your shares. Right. And that's just like the end of the discussion. It was a um, an amendment in their contracts was that they would be brought out of cryo and forced to investigate a distress beacon if one enters a certain proximity to the ship as it travels back home from the mining colony that they had been mm-hmm. stationed on. Great detail that Ash is the one to bring that up. Brings up that, that tiny little clause. Yeah. yeah. And it's not like because they feel it's kind of like sunshine in that it's not because they feel sort of a human or moral duty to go check out what happened right. or like who needs help. It's that the company wants something. Right. The company oh, they, requires. they chafe at it, right? Because yeah. this is the end of their journey. They're on their way home. They were almost home. Mm-hmm. And so when they wake up, they wake up happy with the expectation that they're home and they're going to get paid. And then they check the logs and they're like, oh, no, actually, we're still in space. And what are we doing out here? And they, they chafe at the idea that they have to um, respond to this distress because they're not. that's not what they're here for. That's not what they were trained for. Um, there's a lot of chafing at the role that, that you're given um, on board the ship in this movie. That's another sort of central motif is that everyone wears their roles uncomfortably. Mm-hmm. Um, much like they're uncomfortable in the ship itself, they seem to be wearing roles to, to which they're not particularly well-suited or to which they won't let themselves be well-suited. I, You know, Ripley is clearly very well-suited for her role, but because of um, sexism 
and sort of uh, an- human animosity. Um, people contradict her or undermine her and make decisions um, over her head. Um, Dallas himself is a a person who doesn't wear the sort of. Um, I, what I noticed about Dallas is that he's decent at making decisions, but he's not like very. I, that's what I was looking like for. The, he wears the burden of command uncomfortably. I was right? going to say he he never like you know sallies forth to carry his team to the next thing they need to do. He's just like okay, I'm going to go into the air vents. You guys stay here. It's he's like, frustrated, anxious, yeah. uncomfortable. Um, he seems capable, but right, all of those other things too. Like I don't like. There's nothing in here that makes me think that he's like an incapable leader necessarily. He just wears it in like the like the shrub. Oh. Oh golly gee! Of yeah, he's shrugging. All I mean, the time. none of none of these people are necessarily incapable, right? Yeah. Although they make some decisions that that are highly questionable. Yeah. Um. I mean, particularly Ash, who is it turns out an agent working for the company against the the people on board um, to further their secret objective, which is to bring the xenomorph home. But what I'm what I'm saying is that that in this movie, fundamentally, sort of corporate role positions are. Um, fundamentally square pegs for round holes, right? Like, I, I don't think we get the impression that it's possible for a person to be perfectly well-suited for the role in which they have to play mm-hmm. because people argue with one another and, and people want more than they have or people think of themselves differently than the way that the company has decided they should think about themselves. And so there is this constant ambient tension right. between the people and what they're supposed to do and who they're supposed to be. And that results in arguments and animosity and sort of disagreements and um, a general isolation because they don't own the means of production. That was anyway. a video game thing. Oh, um, yeah, I thought you were making a game oh, joke. I didn't think I was. I was making a Marx joke, but also <laughs> there's a game called Alien Isolation. Uh, they're, all of what you guys are saying, how they don't fit quite fit into their roles, how nobody seems like, they seem capable but not really maybe suited for it in a way, ties back to like, what does the hostility of the Nostromo toward humans. It's cold, unfeeling, like it's non-ergonomic design. What does that say about the choice of people that they brought on to pee on this ship? Like, were they all... Is Ripley the best... What was she? Deck commander, flight commander of this ship? Was Dallas the best captain for this ship? Or was it like the most malleable people, the most blank? But, but like in deciding, you're the president of Wayland Corporation or HR manager or whatever who decides who's going to be on this ship. I mean, what are you I'm, looking for? I'm sure if it's like a big, huge corporate thing, it's probably somebody way further down the list who's like looking for these sure, people. Sure. But like, even e- even with like the the Nostromo being as cold as it is, that's what's so interesting is the relationships between these people are also kind of cold. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, it's very much like you know, there's a little bit of like you know, good small talk when they're first waking up in the intro scene, but after that, it's like. I mean, Parker and Brett are friends, right? But that's because yeah. they're both they're working both class. U- united in their sort of same struggle. Yeah, by their station, right? Yeah. Not because they're like two simpatico folks. It's right. because they work very closely together, and if they don't, they don't get the job done, and they don't get paid. It all comes back to getting paid. Right. right? But, but, I mean, after that scene, there is nothing like that again. It's just sort of this, like, everything is sort of job-related, and then as the tension starts to rise, tensions rise between people. Mm. Like... Kane, Kane's a big jerk. Mm-hmm. Kane and Lambert, uh, like very visibly, don't get along. Like when they were 
actually going out to that to the the ship and the yeah, nest. Yeah, he's kind of an asshole. Yeah, he's sort of a chauvinist to her, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Parker is a little bit too, I guess. Yeah. Uh, you made it. You made a good point, Jason, about the malleability of the potential malleability of the people on board this ship. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that these people are particularly malleable. I think that the point is that they don't have to be. I think that that there's an arrogance to Wayland Utani, um, and and corporate corporatism in general that you can mold people into the shape you want them to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess to to put all my cards on the table, uh, so to speak, I think that's what this movie's about. Is about how um, the sort of corporate construction of human um, working labor and sort of uh, society, how how corporatizing the human society is to make humans less human, is to mold them into a shape of efficiency and um, and perfection and perfection exactly that is fundamentally inhuman and destroys uh, and destroys what makes us human. Um, I think that, that that coincides in part with a lot of things with Ripley's arc in general. Um, I think that, that Ripley herself is more competent and more comfortable in her role than anyone else seems to be. Um, and she, in the first act, rails against people not taking her seriously enough and there's a sexist element to that she's essentially the first mate of the ship i believe she she starts out as third in command because uh, it's dallas and then kane um <laughs> <laughs> what i don't know she starts out as third in command and then everybody dies and then everybody dies yeah. well yeah because uh, i think she says it at one point when uh dallas lambert and kane are out um she has a conversation, I think, later with Ash. Ash, yeah. Yeah, the whole thing about whether or not to let them back on the ship or go through quarantine or whatever. Um, Ripley reminds him that, it's like, when those two are gone, I'm, you know, you take orders from me. Well, that's an important scene, too, because not only does it show that sort of dynamic, but that's also the first time where we visibly, like, Ripley starts showing suspicion in Ash because not only does he forget her station, but he also forgets basic science quarantine law. Right. What? It's it's interesting, right? The yeah. fact the way she calls out Ash is by pointing out the ways in which he is not fulfilling his role. I, she, yeah. She I was, says specifically, uh, you forgot the the first rule of being a science officer. You forgot basic quarantine law. She starts to suspect, like, actually, maybe this guy is fulfilling his role. His role just isn't what we thought it was. Well, and that's the major turn of the second act, right? Is that yeah. in fact your roles are not what you've been told, and they're not what you think that they are. Well, and the move, the, what Ash does in letting um, uh, Kane and the others back on the ship, is like that sci-fi trope of. You know, damned be the ideology, damned be the rules. This is a human we're talking about. Like we break the rules. There's for a great humans. irony to that, right? Yeah, and it's Ashley, the one who's literally not a human, the one who's literally, right. again, ones and zeros, obeying company code. Yeah. Uh, spoilers. We're obviously this is a spoiler. This cast. is a forty-year-old uh, movie. A- yeah, Ash is an android who is programmed to fulfill the mission. Wait, what? That, yeah, that Wayland Yutani laid out for him. It's also interesting. Wayland Yutani is actually not the name of. Like in the in the movie itself, it's only ever the company, right? Uh, the on, on one C of the company. screens, I read in that piece that I was talking about from Cody um, that one of the screens says Waylin, 
without a D. Oh, interesting. And then they like retconned it for later movies to oh, call yeah, Wayland. Oh, yeah, they definitely did. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's never like explicitly stated. It's not like, hey, Wayland told us to do this. It's like, right. you know, the company. Should we back up and go through what actually happens uh, when the alien gets on board the ship? Uh, just to set up the next discussion. Sure. sure. So, yeah. The, so Kane and the uh, and two other crew members is it Dallas and uh, Lambert? Yes. yes. They head out to discover the derelict. Yes. To see, he was on the derelict ship. Uh, Kane is infested, is attacked by one of the broken eggs with the face huggers. Now classic imagery of the face huggers stuck to his face. Uh, they bring him back on board. Ash lets them in despite Ripley's uh, 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 abstinence. That's a bad word for it. What? Despite <laughs> despite her warnings against... Reticence is, I think, what you're looking for? Well, she did abstain from letting them on the ship, so... Okay. Not uh, wrong. She, and to briefly swing in, just, I don't know, the, the way... Fix it, what I'm saying. No, not even that. Uh, the way, like, gender roles and just, like, gender qualities play out, um, I unfairly, obviously, just, like, the nature of being a man or being a woman, being a man, being, like, sticking to, to protocol, uh, not being emotional, um... And then we look at Ripley, who, in the face of this situation, is very, you know, she, she's able to wipe all emotion away and be like, we need to be following the proper codes for this. Um, everybody else is in hysterics, being like, hey, let these, let, we need, let us back on the show. You're, you're saying that, that the, the movie consciously subverts traditional gender roles in Ripley, yeah. especially in the first act. Yeah. Which is, which is I think, tr- and very I, true. Yeah, um, I think other times throughout, that is, I think, like a bigger, like, yeah. climbing up moment of that. Yeah, that happens in a couple ways. I don't want to get too off track, but, like, I mean, that's a big one for me because, like, that scene where she's, like, sticking by the book, like, no, this is quarantine, you need to stay out here for 24 hours, and Dallas, who is ahead of her, and a, a man is, like, yelling at her and right. trying to, like, appeal... I guess emotionally, like let us in the goddamn ship. Like. Uh-huh. Well, she's. It. I mean, again, it's a movie about chauvinism and mm-hmm. about misogyny. She would have been. She was blamed by at least internally for being too cold and not letting a human back on the ship. And if she were too emotional and had made the decision to let let her back on the ship, she would have been probably punished for being blamed too emotional, for bringing right? the alien onto the ship. Exactly right. Like that's that's the uh, the core irony that the movie is trying to point out in that character and, and her relations between characters mm-hmm. in that moment that's what mm-hmm. makes that like for me her defining moment of the movie it's because up until then we see her existing and acting but we don't see like any like super meaningful character development she's introduced just like any other character please well and these characters are really only given enough characterization with the exception of ripley to make an impression right i mean they're all killed in the in the second act or the first act um and and are meant to be sort of metaphorical stand-ins maybe a little bit more than characters in their own right mm-hmm. um it's it's interesting that in that first act ripley the way that she leverages her authority and attempts to make her points known is by defaulting to her role she she points to her um officially designated authority she points to the codes and uh, standard procedures that the company has laid out, um, and she she is grasping for a um, a version of authority and of um, sort of procedure that that has been given to her by by other people. Um, and again, there's the tension there, right? Because it turns out that that the difference is that people won't follow those codes when the chips are 
mm-hmm. down. Um, and so eventually Ash, the science officer, lets um, the infected cane on board the ship. Um, the facehugger um, eventually, uh, like Cody said, impregnates Kane. As an as an aside, the sort of like uh, top level scary thing I've I've read interviews before where like uh, Rip Ridley Scout was talking about like what he wanted to do and, and uh, a recurring horrific element of this movie was very explicitly gendered, where he said that he thought that that men would be afraid of nothing else more than the idea of male impregnation. And so, um, a, a, like male rape and male impregnation, um, by an outside force was specifically what the face hugger was meant to evoke in that fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was very potent for him and sort of drove a lot of what this movie came to be about. Imagine writing the thing that you're most afraid of and like, spending eight to ten months filming it and then releasing it like real energy to that i'm just thinking like yes again he he wrote what he was afraid of right he created this movie he uh, was one of the writers he was the director and everything like it's you saying he's batman I he, he will become him. an alien <laughs> because the, the xenomorph crashed through yeah. his window when he was really <laughs> killed his parents really i became what is no, no. Uh, Ridley Scott in a xenomorph costume is what I'm getting at. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, as he soon becomes the monster. Yes. As soon as uh, the alien, or Kane is up back on the ship, um, we know things are going to go south, generally. Can't speak from a 1979 perspective, but like in 2019, you can watch this movie having watched other horror movies and know that things aren't going to go very well. Um, and they slowly start to pick apart the, uh, the peculiarities of this alien life form that's still stuck to Kane's face. It bleeds acid and damages the ship, and everybody panics over it damaging the ship. Uh, over damaging yeah, the that's hull. an important part, right? It's is that it, people freak out about the fact that it's damaging the ship, but it, it's because it might kill them. Right, it might breach the hull and like suck all the o- oxygen out. That's understandable, but uh, it goes through like it's kind of extended sequence for them like importantly watching where it's going to stop eating through the hull. That always sticks in my mind for some reason. Yeah, that one scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, they find that they can't get it off. Later on, uh, he's. Uh, you, they do they end up removing it or no? It it comes off by itself right. eventually. Yeah. Just suddenly, it's it not basically there. just seemingly goes off somewhere to die after it's filled off its purpose. Uh, and then we move toward Kane being he wakes up, he's cognizant, he's hungry, uh, eating. And then that the chestburster scene that everybody yeah the the baby alien the baby xenomorph bursts out of his stomach um, in in a birth birthing sequence. Uh, and flees onto the ship. Um, and so the, the rest of the, the sort of first act is about the crew members creating, again, creating procedures. It's really interesting how they always, they have meetings and they argue about the best way to take this thing out. Mm-hmm. They, um, they create these sort of um, jury-rigged gadgets to try to stop the alien. These, these gadgets are awkward and don't work the way that they should often. Um, they pick up Jonesy the cat uh, the cattle prod is dangerous. Um, these are these are instruments that aren't necessarily for the purpose um, for which they were built originally. Um, Everything's being retrofitted, right? Whereas there's a, a very pointed contrast, which is that the Nostromo is perfect for the Xenomorph. Um, eventually, we 
um, are told by Ash, the science officer, that in fact the xenomorph adapts to its environment perfectly to the point where its its physical organs, its physical um, construction, um, comes to match wherever it lives, the environment that it, it that it's a part of, in order to make it perfect for wherever it is. So we have these humans who are so obviously not perfect or ill-suited for their roles and their environment versus the xenomorph who is perfect for everything. Mm -hmm. And the thing it's perfect for is the corporate construction of the world it inhabits. So we've created this world, corporations have created this world where humans are ill-suited, but this monster is perfectly suited, um, which which, uh, foregrounds how important it is that the alien does what it does. Um, which is not only kill people, but subsume them. It creates more aliens. What the alien does is it impregnates people and replaces those people with xenomorphs. Um, the 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 alien, in fact, comes to take on um, anatomical elements of humanity right, based on the people that it is subsumed. You don't see so much in the movie just because of the lighting and the different parts of the staging, but if you look at the costume for the alien, I mean, everybody here has seen it, like there's a distinctly human-shaped skull face behind that like large oblong part of its head uh, that reminds me heavily of um, Annihilation, that one scene with the bear in Annihilation. I think that's a it's one of the things that's fucked me up the most over about a movie in the last five or ten years. Um, I know we probably don't shout out Annihilation enough. Uh, we don't. We definitely don't. Annihilation Watch is Annihilation. amazing. I think it's one of the best sci-fi Aaron, movies. Have you seen Annihilation? Um, I haven't. I've, I heard you guys talking about it. I was going to watch it the other night. Consider this your official, our official appeal for you your to watch this movie. Your official appeal. Okay, I'll definitely make sure to watch that then. Annihilation, come on the podcast. But but the important thing is that that the alien might retain elements of humanity but it is not human right at whatsoever it lives for one thing it lives without pity or remorse or fear or whatever uh ash calls it in the in the one sort of purple prose monologue that i love so much in this movie where ash admires the alien's purity and so this this symbol of corporatism ash um who who lives to tout the company line literally as an android he admires the alien almost in a godlike way because the alien is a perfect manifestation of what corporatism is aiming at which is replacing the imperfect with the singular and the perfect aliens only exist to forward their own vision of the world right. and to replace anything that doesn't match that vision that construction with what they are and Ash admires that because that is parallel to what corporatism itself, what Wayland yutani is doing, which is replacing these people, these lifestyles, with a, a hierarchical role system that they control for profit. Well, corporations are treated as people, so like, <laughs> corporations are li- people literally that in this movie. Um, it, the the alien looks like the ducks, right? It looks like the Nostromo. Yeah. Well, um, I, like, I, heard, I heard ducks like quack quack, which was better. But. Yeah. Next episode, we're going to talk about. Uh, I would love to the see the mighty flying ducks, ducks the, the mighty ducks episode, whatever. <laughs> the flying vein. Mighty if, ducks. If, <laughs> if a xenomorph was in some sort of a, like a pond, maybe it would adapt to look duck-like. A flying xenomorph. <laughs> oh Jesus! Game over. 
Game over, Game man. Game over, man. Uh, but, I mean, if you actually kind of going back to adapting to its environment, looking at the costume, I mean, not only in its head, I mean, it has arms and legs, like yeah. fairly humanoid type. I, I mean, along with its other modifications. Although, I mean, it kind of sucks that that sort of adapting to its environment motif seems to die off after this movie. Yeah, I, in Aliens, they just decided, like, actually, the xenomorph we created for Aliens looks really fucking cool. So well, we're just going to use that for everything. Like, we talked about how it bucks a lot of trends of earlier sci-fi horror, but, like, when you look bare bones at the costume that the... What's his name? Bolaji Badeo. I'm assuming that's how you pronounce it. He's Nigerian, or he was Nigerian. He died. Uh like when you just see him in costume it looks like almost any other, like you could see it well lit on the stage of like a crappy 1950s like it's well designed it's really like creepy mm-hmm. but ultimately it is very humanoid in shape except for the head mm-hmm. and the tail I guess um, so uh, like H.R. Geiger I, I think everyone knows that but H.R. Geiger designed the alien yeah. and designed um, the, the alien elements of this movie interestingly enough he didn't design the Nostromo or the more human things they pointedly wanted different production designers for that was both. a good choice yeah which is, it's interesting, and it's also interesting that in my mind, uh, the Nostromo is meant to parallel the alien more than it is meant to parallel the human, more than it's meant to represent the human. So it's hmm. interesting that they had different production designers, because I, w- I wouldn't have thought that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so moving forward into the story, when uh, Ellen Ripley becomes much a, a much bigger part of the plot, she, uh, you know, it's winnowing down, you can start to see that she's like the one who's... Uh, sort of taking the lead when Dallas dies again spoilers all around uh, but what what do they do to her character aside from give her more lines that sort of brings her to the forefront as the protagonist I mean she like really sort of sort of steps up right I mean she uses that sort of confidence that she's been kind of almost like maybe holding back in a way like she was saying much more to the book before but she like had all this confidence and like it really shines forth there when the like shit hits the fan and all of a sudden like she's starting to command people trying to keep things under check um and she does a good job of it i mean yeah and the like the fact that she is uh, a very pointedly rational person as we've seen like that still carries through she's very more mm-hmm. confident about it very more forceful uh a lot, a lot more forceful about it keeping her crew in check as well um reining in uh parker when he starts to kind of uh, and like lambert too because it gets you know comes to be that those three are the last people remaining she kind of reins them in and says all right like this is this is still the plan we're going to follow the plan um and uh yeah just like the the fact that she is able to be the same person but just like a more elevated visible confident version of that same person. That's a really fascinating point, that she doesn't shift who she is. It, it's a shift of framing, right? Yeah. I, I think she starts to foreground who she is as a person and as a human more than a role. She has a falling out, obviously, with the company itself, uh, represented in Ash and in Mother. Mm-hmm. Um, she ends up destroying Mother. Um, she ends up blowing up the ship itself. Um Ash is killed by the crew members after he tries to kill her. Um, that's an interesting sequence we should talk about. Um, I By the end of the movie, I think that, that in, at least in my reading, the arc of Ripley is that she comes to foreground more the human and, and the parts of herself that she feels less alienated by, maybe. There's a reading for this that it's, it's about her coming into t- 
touch with her femininity again. I think the movie itself resists that. I don't particularly like that reading, but it's there mm-hmm. because Jonesy, the cat, can represent her sort of maternal instinct. The mm-hmm. fact that she's looking for Jonesy like near the end, like there's like the pursuit for like survival, but also the simultaneous pursuit for the cat. Yeah, that I, I think that reading is what makes that so interesting because they're like making these preparations to destroy the ship and like they're you know they're rushing because they don't know when the xenomorph is going to come back and try to kill them and all of a sudden she just takes this like very determined detour to find jones and she's successful she saves the cat um in the extended cut she also kills the people who had been infected by the alien i was wondering it, if that was ever part of the movie yeah yeah it's it's really weird i when i rewatched it last night uh i did watch the director's cut which as a general note is just far inferior to the theatrical cut. Thanks for showing the director's cut Parkway Theater. Yeah, the Parkway showed the director's cut. Did they? Yep. I didn't even know And they didn't one. even tell us. They just showed they oh, said Alien sh- and then we got there and it was the director's <laughs> cut. And the Trilon played the original. Well, shout outs to the Trilon. Yeah, yeah I don't shout out to, to say the Trilon. Else. Uh, well, because what's so weird about the director's cut, and the report I read about it was that Ridley Scott was essentially like harassed into making the director's cut and so, I mean, I guess I understand that point but like honestly the director's cut damages the movie because it it shores off a lot of basically what it does is it takes a lot of the scenes that are like longer and more deliberate and really like take time in the scene which is something that movie does so well Mm -hmm. and it just shaves all of that down Mm -hmm. and takes out a lot of scenes harry and i on the way here we're talking about it took out one really important scene we thought where um dallas is going into it's like about an hour into the movie when shit's kind of really starting to pick up and dallas goes into mother to try and get information on what's going on and she just basically replies that she has nothing and like there's no further which is a lie yeah she she lies yeah she says no further clarification and everybody's kind of left wondering what's going on it was something like what what are our chances and she's like I don't know. Not, not, not insufficient data. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and there's like a really good, poignant moment where like uh, he he stops asking questions and just sits there, like resigned. And then we just sort of like pan out, and you just see him alone in this right. like even, womb, like uh, even, even leading up to that, like just that slow degradation of his syntax into the machine. He's like he starts typing like very robotic commands, like uh, you know there are. I'm forgetting exactly the phrasing that he does, but it's more or less like trying to explain. How do they how do they move yeah. forward? What kind of procedures and protocols do we have? And she's just giving him a stone wall, and then finally he's just like, "What are my chances?" Yeah. <laughs> she types this into a machine. Yeah. Talking to a computer. She's like, "No further, no further clarification." And he types in "lol," <laughs> like it just keeps the ball there. <laughs> yeah, mayo and <laughs> winky face, and and I mean like wyd. <laughs> you up? I'm removing hey, mama. That, that scene from the movie. It's like that was so important, and it just like further sanitizes the movie more and more in ways they shouldn't have. The one good thing it does is it adds this cocoon scene where uh, a bit haphazardly Ripley happens to stumble upon... Yeah, I mean, the, its placement in the movie doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's a good scene. Yeah, so Ripley happens to stumble upon where the alien dragged uh, Brett and Dallas and had essentially was cocooning them, and like she eventually ends up like putting them out of their misery so to speak right because dallas is saying like kill me right? yeah he's just like very pained like kill me right that that sounds like a pretty bad i don't know like part of part of what i loved about alien was not that like like the assumption that like they were either dead or being turned into something and that just like 
created this further panic in me to like get Ripley off the ship, like get her the fuck out of there. I like that it makes explicit that what the alien is doing is subsuming them into sure. its yeah. um, biology, its sort of cons- uh, society. Okay. But I'm with you. That I, 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 I think like that metaphor lives either way in the nature of how the alien kills people. I like the implication more than the like how it's how it makes it explicit in right. scene, which I've never seen, but right. like they bring it back obviously for aliens. Mm-hmm. And I'm uh Harry, I agree with you that uh it's a good scene. It it's not placed correctly. It creates this weird like rift in uh Ripley's like arc, her emotional journey, just because she has like this it's her with that scene included, it's her biggest like outburst of the movie. She's like full on sobbing, blasting Dallas and I think Brett yeah, uh, and maybe others with the the flamethrower, and then it's basically we cut away, and it's that shot of her like climbing up the ladder. Yeah, it's just like as if nothing had happened, mm-hmm. and it just fits so weirdly. Yeah, um, the to get back to the tool motif, mm-hmm. um, I think that's an important part of Ripley's arc because in the end she uses the self destruct sequence to destroy, or she hopes the alien. When that doesn't work, she climbs into a spacesuit to to protect herself. Uh, she sings that song, You Are My Shining Lucky Star. Lucky Star, thanks. Um, that coincides with, in the second act, how they how the characters began to adapt their own tools for, for purposes that they weren't constructed for, necessarily. Um, and it, it, it symbolizes how Ripley comes to um, reframe the way she thinks about herself. Those tools are no longer tools for a purpose that isn't her own. They're tools that she is using as opposed to tools she's being used by. Mm. Um, she comes to see herself as more human than tool, in my opinion. Whereas in the beginning of this movie, she is fulfilling a role. By the end of the movie, she's fighting for her life. But she's fighting for her life, right? Mm-hmm. And and fighting for Jonesy. And so she she's come to sort of... Uh, self-define in a way that she hadn't been before and in the process she reframes the way that she thinks about the world around her and the tools that she uses and so we're able to to rethink those things too um and so the, the it's a movie about um the necessity of thinking about yourself differently even in a world where you are being um weaponized essentially or being um being twisted into a tool a, mm-hmm. a, a into a shape a to fit corporate um framework to fit the box you're in the, the to fit um, the Nostromo right I think that that's her arc okay. in my opinion on my reading um would you guys rather continue recording while I pee or you want me to pause <laughs> we I should really pause need to pee okay. <laughs> How was your pee? You feel better? It was uh, as if uh, you remember the chestburster scene from Alien, that nineteen seventy nine film Alien. Uh huh. Sorry, what's Alien? Ooh boy! If you take what isn't Alien? Am I right? Anybody ever used one of those trough urinals? Yeah, anytime I go to a college football game. Oh yeah, they had them at the Metrodome too. Yeah, yeah. The Metrodome, real real Minnesota hours. Oh, that you know you're in Minnesota if. You miss the Metrodome if, every day. If you pee at a trough. Also, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But you piss in a bowl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Only MN things. Have you ever seen somebody talking to somebody else at one of those? Because I have, and it, 
scarred me for life. Yeah, I think like we're just riffing again, just like it's the start of the episode. No, yeah. I mean it's it 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 reduces us as humans. It, it feels very like ooh uniform. Then very Stromo probably has trough urinals. <laughs> it definitely does. And we're back. Uh, Harry, okay. did I cut you off? No, from a thing you were saying. Earlier. No, nothing important ever. Boo. Um, what? Okay, <laughs> so we're back. <laughs> Continue on that thought you had about uh, uh, Ellen Ripley. I I really really like the turn in this movie. Um, from from the sort of, in my opinion, the thing that uh, signifies the the end of the first act and the start of the second act. Uh, no, that's not true. Back it up. Um, <coughs> Stop it. The thing that starts the second act is the alien. Uh, the thing that maybe that happens in the second act is they figure out that um, that the Nostromo was lying to them. That mother and the, the company were lying to them. Their mission was never to go to the mining colony and come back home and, the, and maybe respond to the distress signal. That was only ever... Um, a, a smokescreen for the real mission, which was to go to this planet um, and respond to the distress signal with the express purpose of picking up the alien and taking it on board the ship. Um, and the crew is expendable. It says crew expendable mm-hmm. when when Ripley finally figures that out. And when Ripley figures that out, when she goes into the ship log, that's when Ash attacks her. Um, and he tries to kill her by by he makes a funnel out of a magazine and tries to like burp up his like android juices into her mouth. Is that what he's doing? Yeah, very violent phallic imagery, right? Right. Uh, it's another um, excuse me um, rape metaphor. Um, the the sexual assault metaphors in this movie are are sort of in this in the classic existential mold, in my opinion, which is that they're about the destruction of self-determination about removing the possibility for your own agency identification, mm-hmm. your own agency, right? It's about destroying that, which is what these social constructions of corporatism do. Um, this, this movie is about people who think that they can um, maintain their individuality and their humanity while serving in corporate capacities in roles their sort of tragic flaw so to speak is that that's not true this movie is is um pessimistic or cynical skeptical i guess of that possibility because it it comes to be revealed that the corporation is not allowing for that 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 corporate constructions of society don't allow for individuality or uh, humanity within the system, it finds a way to scrub that out. Mm-hmm. Literally, in terms of the xenomorph, uh, in this case. Well, and it's really interesting you say that too, because there's one scene that uh, only upon rewatching it for this time finally stuck out to me, especially in regards to that theme specifically, is when Kane is dead and they have like the funeral for him or whatever, and they just basically say, like, does anybody have any like last things they want to say or whatever? And it's like, oh, okay, they're paying their last respects to their you know comrade on the ship or whatever. And then they jettison him out the fucking airlock. <laughs> they bless him the fuck out into space. Yeah. Exactly. And it's like, it, it's so wild because like, well, wait, aren't you gonna like keep him to like bring back to like loved ones to have a service or something? And it's like. The moment where you're like, oh, these people are the humanity in this whole thing, and then they just go and 
throw their. I, I want a smash cut from from the screen that says crew is expendable to just him being. <laughs> out well, and, and like what a what a poignant uh, or uh, unsubtle metaphor, right? Is that literally you're blasting a dude off into the darkness of space where he will become nothing? Mm-hmm. Because like in the face of space, there is. Nothing. In space, no one can hear you scream, which is the tagline. It's pretty good. It's oh. the best tagline uh, in movie history. Probably. Hot take. That's pretty good. In can, space, no one can hear you scream? If only yeah. because I can't think of another exactly. tagline. Exactly. I came up yeah, right. I don't know. We so didn't I win do by our default. power rankings. <laughs> yeah. Congrats. Hey, uh, it's still a win. It, exactly. Uh, is that another tagline? <laughs> Probably. Ooh, a better one. A better um, one. Harry, you lose. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I, I say that this is maybe, in my opinion, one of the best anti-capitalist movies is that such a pointed message and and such a insightful and angry message is that it is impossible for the human to coexist with the corporate Mm -hmm. these sort of corporate constructions of society and labor will always fundamentally find a way to destroy the human and fit people into the roles that make them more efficient because that's what they're meant to do. Right. It's it's not even like an oil and water situation. It's that, you know, the company is, is the solvent and the uh, human is the solute, right? Yeah. Like yeah, it, one, exactly. one will, well, one will dis- definitively subsume the other. Like, it, because that's what it's constructed to do. Right, the, exactly. The alien was working in, in the manner in which it was intended. The company was working in the manner in which it was intended, which is destroying the imperfect and replacing it mm-hmm. with the perfect, quote-unquote. And the perfect is not human. The perfect is something that that is a tool that is utilized towards the making of more. Right. The One continuation sta- of continuity. Exactly. One stat that I... Um, that I brought up when putting together notes for this show was about uh, the declining power of the of labor and the um, decreasing participation in unions uh, between 1970 and 1980. Uh, and this is from Wikipedia. I followed through the source, but the um, National Government Databases page was all fucked. So I'm assuming that it's true because I couldn't find an exact source for it. But uh, that the major number of major work stoppages uh, led by union movements fell from in 1970 from 381 to 187 uh, by by 1980. And then uh, in 2010, that number had decreased to literally only 11. So the power of unions and the power of people to actually fight back against that solvent has only gets weaker and weaker and weaker as the corporations get stronger and stronger and stronger. It's not. It's like not a. It's barely survival, right? It's not a war. It's not what then the rest of Alien and the rest of the uh, franchise made it out to be, where it's just like a bunch of aliens that we have to survive against and fight back against, and eventually humanity will prevail. It's like this is a a poison that's already there that mimics you that becomes you that subsumes you no that, it, that'll be the second episode when we talk about aliens <laughs> i think we just did yeah it's it's an interesting it's interesting to tie that also to the broader existential and natural threat of the alien the alien that represents the perfect organism in the sense that it's an apex predator that had been sort of naturally through natural selection created to become perfect mm-hmm. um, there's a there's an interesting even broader reading of that um, beyond corporatism towards the idea that we shouldn't be constructing human societies in in perfectionist or natural quote unquote evolutionary terms the the idea being that that there are things that are not perfectly efficient that are nonetheless what make us 
people and that are worth preserving. Um, the idea being that that ultimately the sort of zero sum of natural selection is not something that is human and is not something that is um, something we should be striving toward, and it is something that corporatism strives toward, and that is an evil uh, thing to to aim at. And and so there's a there's a sense in which humans should break from the natural, and I like that because I think a lot of um, sort of uh, sci-fi cautionary tales they can they can be weirdly um like primitivist in some sense senses where technology is the evil mm-hmm. um that's not what this is saying the the tools that that we create are not evil in and of themselves what's evil about the tools are the ideology that constructed them and i think that ripley is able to appropriate the tools that's maybe something alien does kind of well i think alien is sort of a continuation or sorry aliens is a continuation of that metaphor about how we can um we can reappropriate the tools to to be more human alien totally botches that because they tie it to the military industrial complex which is fucked uh anyway aliens aliens does yeah do i keep saying alien sorry i am wonderful for the most part i am one of the best in my mind is relatively perfect really one of the best mind is i am just shy of 117 i am trying to survive which i know was wrong i am an alien a really short short alien i don't want what he did um so um shit on me very cool, Aaron. Very, very cool. I don't know. It didn't seem to have much bearing to what I was saying, but I guess you can make that point. Go off, King. Go off, King. <laughs> uh, I, I am very near the end of my thoughts of Alien, I guess. I've kind of flushed my system. I mean, you you did. Don't let people peek behind the curtain at Oz over here. I was just taking a piss. <laughs> you already did that, though. Like, let them peek behind the curtain, that is. I think we've all been sufficiently replaced with the xenomorph at this point. <laughs> Eric, you are, you've been holding your phone for the last, like, ten minutes. Is Jesus Christ. I, I was just kind of, Call like, pu- pulling back the curtain. <laughs> it's gone. I was just the kind of clearing, clearing through my notes on what we'd already talked about and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was one thing that I, I kind of wanted to go back to, and I think Cody kind of wanted to talk a little bit about, too, which was, like, kind of gender roles and, like, phallic imagery and stuff. One thing I thought was really interesting in regards to gender was... Well, I guess there was two. So one was the the scene where Dallas, like... Ripley's like, I'm going to go into the ducks, and Dallas, like, stops her. And it's interesting because I at first I especially as we were talking about this i read that and i was like oh this is a gender thing where it's like he's he's the man and he thinks he has to do this but then i kind of stepped back for a second i was like maybe that's part of it but maybe he also like feels guilty about the situation because he broke the protocol and like got the alien on the ship and so like he felt responsible and had to go in there yeah that's a really good point i interpreted that as excuse me him just uh kind of like sliding like apathetically sliding into his role as captain which he doesn't really seem crazy about he's not like uh, like he's okay in his role he's very capable um and i in that moment i just took it as he assumed he should be the person to to like take that chance Mm. for the rest of the ship um painting it in like like from a gender perspective though is probably a a good idea a better idea i think that the gender roles integrate with the idea of 
of sort of natural selection and naturalism not being something that's ideal in an interesting way here where um in in some ways there there's that corporate epitomized through Dallas push toward gender roles right where where he is attempting to as a man um, take control of the situation over Ripley, despite the fact that she is better suited for that mm-hmm. role. Yeah. Um, or even not that she's better suited for that role, but just that she she has a better understanding of the situation, that, that she is um, she is the obvious choice. Um, that's that's a, a sense in which uh, or I, I should just say it's it's interesting that this that this movie chooses to make Ripley the main character, and I think it integrates really well with the idea that we don't have to be roles that that um, creating roles fundamentally destroys the human, mm-hmm. uh, and that attempting to um, define yourself that way is um, d- agency um, depriving, um, and that that Ripley's arc is as a woman um, coming to reassert her own agency um there that that gender integration works really well in in my opinion in this movie Mm. well and what i think is also interesting uh, this was one thing that just kind of popped out at me was um much like the chestburster much like the (laughs) chestburster um there's uh it has to do with the word bitch um Mm. which is generally viewed as like derogatory towards women right but what's interesting is the only time that is ever used in the movie is by a female character. Specifically, Ripley uses it yelling at Mother, but also in the director's cut, Lambert uses it against Ripley when she's, like, coming at her for not letting them onto the ship. That's right. Uh, the scene where uh, everybody's kind of waiting f- for the diagnosis to be made on Kane, uh, in the director's cut, that scene is... Uh, Elongated to include like a, a scuffle between Lambert and Ripley, where mm-hmm. she right she comes at her and, and starts fighting. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting part. I don't I don't know if I love Lambert in this movie. Uh, I feel like we're sort of over a over a time now, uh, so we can move on. But uh, but Lambert is sort of um, often framed as hysterical in a way that is frustrating to me. Mm. Um, and but it is it is interesting to set up. Um, that that sort of female um, animosity and in, in how it frames Ripley and how it frames Lambert and how it creates a situation where because of roles these people have to be um, at odds with one another. Um, it sort of it demonstrates how the construction of the Nostromo uh, creates animosity between people and division and how that might work toward than Nostromo's goal, in fact. Um, you know, uh, I think that that Ash certainly relied on that suspicion and that um, unwillingness to help one another. He, he manipulated um, their compassion in order to get the alien on board, like you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that's Alien. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite it, movies. I think it's one of the best movies ever made. It, yeah, uh, it's part of Alien. I mean, like yeah. we were saying, we could talk about it for hours Forever, longer, right. but, you know. And, you know, it's been talked about for 40 years, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, we should talk about some of the best of those things, right? Um, Cody, you had a really good article, the type, typography of Alien. Yeah, I assume we'll link these things that we're about to talk about. It, it was Bold alluded to. Do 
I don't know. I, well, oh. at least I will be. Uh, I'll be tweeting it from my personal account, if nothing else, and then I will log in to our Follow podcast Cody. Twitter. It's uh, Cody underscore bh on Twitter. Yeah, you could do that. Uh, it's really hard to talk about the typography in Alien on this podcast, but there's this great article about it uh, that came out about five years ago. You can also Google it if you Google Alien movie typography. It's the first like eight results. Um, so uh, you should do that. Um, also, Harry, that yeah. th- one that you showed me when we saw it at the Parkway. Fuck you, Parkway. Um, <laughs> but you, you, yeah. you linked me this, and I read it, and it's incredible. Yeah, uh, Bright Wall, Dark Room commissioned an article by Sarah Eliza Johnson, who is a, an award-winning poet. Um, she actually, uh, her first book of poetry, um, which is called Bone Map, I think. Sorry if I got that wrong. But it was published by Milkweed Publications, which is a um, oh, publishing cool. studio in Minneapolis. Oh, cool. Uh, above the loft. Yeah, they're really cool. They're great. Um, Eliza, or Sarah Eliza Johnson is an incredible writer. She wrote um, uh, a sort of analysis slash poem slash personal um accounting of her experience with Alien and, and her life called Xenomorph for Brightwall Dark Room. Um, it's, I'm not <laughs> an original thinker necessarily, it's where I derived a lot of my reading of this um, movie. Uh, it's incredible. Uh, I highly recommend it. Um, Xenomorph by Sarah Eliza Johnson at Brightwall Dark Room. It's pretty easy to find if you... Um, I'll link it. it. Yeah, we'll link it. Um, also, this is... Yeah, even more nerdy and, and personal. If you like a lot of the, the messaging about um, anti-corporatism and stuff, uh, I can't recommend Friends at the Table enough. Uh, it's a podcast. Um, Austin Walker, Jack DeKeet, Art Tebble, um, Ali Akampura. Um, they, they do an actual play podcast. Uh, their second season, Counterweight, sort of adapts a lot of the um, anti-capitalist messages to the uh, like mecha anime genre, um, and in the process, they they speak to a lot of this stuff in it and sort of adapt it for contemporary times in a way that's brilliant, in my opinion. Um, I say it's personal because I like that show a whole bunch, and I try to get everybody to listen to it all the time. Uh, you should listen to it; they're much bigger than we are, so I don't know why I'm promoting them right now. But <laughs> could really use one of those that's extra it. five listeners we have. Okay, uh, I'll let Eric start, but we're signing off. I'm Eric. I'm Harry. I'm Cody. Hey there. This is Aaron. And this is Jason, last survivor of the Trilove, signing off. How come you guys don't freeze him? (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) 